0: All right, let me read our passage for today, which is Job chapter 2 verse 11, chapter 3 verse 26, and after that we will move on to our sermon. This is God's word. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place: Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then I would have been at rest, with kings and counsellors of the earth, who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not, as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and the weary are at rest. There the prisoners, are at ease together. They are not the voice of the, they hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in the soul? Who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sign comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Let's pray. Father, be with us as we exegete this passage and this prayer of lament that Job lifts up to you in his dark night. Help us see the truths in it and let those truths Dictate the way we live. And most importantly, let us through it, Father, see Jesus. And in His name alone we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to continue through our series in the book of Job. And and just a quick word this is by far the most depressing passage of the Bible that I've ever preached on. We're, We're at the point here where Job, he's lost all of his possessions, all of his ten children, his health. His marriage was struggling at this point, and he's now sitting alone outside the city gates, quite literally on top of a pile of trash. This is where we find Job when his three friends visited him, and and what they found there was someone who was quite literally depressed. Now our passage today consists of two different scenes and there's a lot to learn I think from these two scenes. The first scene is chapter 2 verses 11 to 13 where we see there Job's friends visiting him, mourning with him. And the second scene is chapter 3 verses 1 to 26, that long poem we just read. We learn a lot from how Job mourn with God here in his poetic prayer. And also, we see Job's obedience to God in his season of mourning, even when everything around him was collapsing, even when he didn't want to. Okay, so important lessons, I'd say, about mourning, how to do it in community, how to do it with God, especially in times like this where very likely sadness it's going to come and visit you, or perhaps a loved one. And the way the church handles those moments is a huge testimony to who God is. 1 Corinthians says, in how you eat, drink, or in whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Well, how about in the way you mourn? Can you do that in a way that glorifies God as well? Well, yes, you can. There's three things I want to point out about how to mourn in a way that glorifies God. First point is comfort in community. Second point is honesty Honest specificity in prayer. And third point is obedience and self-soothing. Comfort in community, honest specificity in prayer, and obedience and self-soothing. All right, those are the three points I want I want to talk about. First one, comfort in community. So chapter 2, verse 11, we see Job's friends visiting him. Uh, And when they heard of all this evil, passage says, that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Now remember, this is pre-social media, this is pre-motorized vehicles, right? So the news traveled slower and mobility is much more limited, so it would have taken them a really long time to get to Job. In fact, if you read chapter 7, verse 3, you'll see that Job says um, he's been in this state of deep mourning for months now. He's been in here for months. But despite of all the effort it must have taken them to come to Job, they they came still. Why? Look at the end of verse 11. To simply sympathize with him. To comfort him. Now, that's great that his friends did this. But we must be careful from having an over-idealized view of Job's friends here. We got to read these three characters in light of their role in the whole book. Okay, right now they're being friends. Right now they're approaching Job to comfort him. But remember in the book, Job's three friends here, they're not the good guys. From chapter four onwards, you'll see that they won't stop bombarding Job with accusations. They're going to keep speculating, presumptuously, you know, saying... Job, you suffered because you did this, or uh, you suffered because you sinned, or if you want to fix a problem, this is what you have to do. They, they presumed to know the problem, they presumed to know whose fault it is and what the solution was, and God later rebukes these three people for being presumptuous in their accusations and being overly simplistic in their solutions because they were wrong. None of it was right. So... In a roundabout way, if you read the whole book, what we see here in verse 11 is not just a picture of three good friends coming to visit Job to comfort him. We're supposed to look at this visitation from the perspective of the whole book. So verse 11 is not primarily meant to approve Job's friends, but it's actually meant to foreshadow the future trouble that they will bring upon Job. Their visit is meant to foreshadow their role, not just as current friends, but also as future foe. Not just as current comforters, but also as future miserable comforters, as Job would describe them. Not just as current consolers, but also as future accusers. So in a sense, verse 11 is almost a preemptive rebuke to Job's friends who entered into Job's mourning presumptuously. They wanted a comfort, but but they came in as the authority, thinking that they knew what the problem was. They knew whose fault it was. They knew how to solve it. And, and if you read the book, um, uh, these people spoke with such authority, but yet God threw them down and said, you don't know what you're talking about. They're actually in the wrong. So, so verse 11 here, the first thing we see about how to mourn in community is this. When you attempt to comfort a friend who is in mourning, don't waltz into the situation presuming to know what's going on. Begin with curiosity rather than with accusation. Listen before you speak. Ask before you advise. That's the first thing we see here in verse 11. Their, their approach of Job is meant to be a foreshadowing of the future troubles they're they're going to give him. So don't be like that. The, the second thing we see here about mourning in community is in verse 12. And they saw him, the friends, from a distance they didn't recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. Now, why didn't these friends recognize Job? Well, well some might say it's because um, they were still far off. Some will say it's because Job had skin boils and skin issues, um, and they couldn't recognize him because of that. I, I want to propose that it's, it's, it's neither. I think they actually didn't recognize it was Job. Um, Oh, rather, I think they did know it was Job because immediately after that, it says they raised their voices and wept. So they came from a distance and then they cried. Now, why would they weep for a random depressed stranger that they didn't recognize? They, they knew it was Job. They, they knew the person that was sitting on this ash heap was their friend, was Job, or else why would they weep? So then what does it mean that they didn't recognize him? Have you ever visited a friend that's experienced something so traumatic, perhaps like Job did here, who, who lost a child, and then you go visit them, and then when you leave that place, another person asks you, How, how's he doing? And you say, man, I couldn't even recognize him. What you're saying there is not that you couldn't tell it was him. What you're saying there is that the calamity this person experienced was so traumatic it changed them. Some events are so terrible, it changes people. Perhaps you've experienced that in a loved one. Perhaps you've experienced that in yourself. Where after an event, whatever life was left in you was sucked out. And now you were just an empty shell of your former self. They knew it was Job but they could barely recognize him because he was just an empty shell of his former self. So what do they do? Look at the rest of verse 12. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. Now, no one knows exactly what these actions meant. Some say they were trying to empathize with Job uh, at the death of Job's children because these are the things you do in funerals back then. Others say they're trying to empathize with Job's loss of possession. They tore their robes, right? Job was naked, had nothing. Others w- say they empathize with the skin boils because when they threw the dust in the air and it landed in their, in their skin. No one knows exactly what the exact symbolism here, but what is clear is that whatever they were doing, they were trying to empathize with Job. Empathy. Empathy is the ability to feel what another person's feeling. Job's friends here, to a degree, felt what he felt. That's why they came in the first place, right? To sympathize with him in verse 11. Look, it's one thing to visit a stranger's funeral because you're expected to. That's called responsibility. It's another thing to visit the funeral of a friend's child, or in this case his 10 children, because your heart has been sunk in since the very second you heard the news. That's empathy. It's one thing to give food to the poor because that's the right thing to do. That's responsibility. That's responsibility. It's another thing to give food to the poor because you actually feel their panic of not knowing how to feed their children that day. That's empathy. Job's friends here did the work of entering into his pain, and we should be cautious, friends, of assuming the authority to direct the hands of a mourning person if we have not yet felt their heart. So the second thing that we learn here about mourning in community is do the difficult task of feeling their heart before you assume the authority to direct their hands. Lastly, third thing we see about how to mourn in community. Look at verse 12. What did Job's friends do? They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. And almost all the commentaries I consulted agree that seven days and seven nights here is not literal. Right? It's not a literal, they didn't stay there with him for seven days, seven nights. That, that would require almost superhuman strength. So why the number seven? Well, like many other parts in the Bible, the number seven is often not literal. It, it represents the sense of completion, totality, wholeness. So Job's friends here, they waited, in other words, until the fullness of time has come. In other words, they didn't rush Job. They waited. How long? How long is long enough to mourn with someone? We'll look at chapter 3, verse 1, the next verse. Who broke the silence there? Who spoke up first? The friends? No. Job did. They waited until Job was ready. See, it's tempting to want to impose our own personal preference of of how long another person should mourn, but your timeline of mourning is not the same as theirs. And one of the worst things anyone can hear when they're in a state of mourning is just get over it. Look, people's capacity, maturity, physiology, chemistry, it's all different Why? Because their upbringing, their biology, their childhood developed habits are different. They can't handle depression and anxiety in the same way that you do. Um, I've shared this story before, but I think this is relevant here again. A friend of mine who uh, used to teach at uh, MTR, which is uh, Memphis Teachers Residency, uh, which is a a program where they send teachers uh, to the inner cities of Memphis, um, told me one of the exercises they did to help the teachers empathize with uh, the, the urban city kids that they're going to teach uh, who are underprivileged, is that they t- uh, the, the, uh, the leaders of MTR took these teachers to a big field, and they lined it up and said, you're going you're to race. And there's the beginning and the end. And when I say go, you're going to go. So they lined them up in one line. And then before they uh, said go, uh, they, they s- uh, the, the leader pointed out one of the people and one of the new teachers and said, you. You um, grew up with no father and your mom worked two jobs so you really had no caregiver. I want you to take five steps back. You, your, your parents were physically abusive and uh, they abandoned you uh, often and they had no money to pay for your education. So I want you to take 20 steps back. You, you come from a privileged family and a privileged race, and you had a, a good education in your whole life, your parents have uh, been able to provide and support uh, you with medication and, and proper nutrition, and a house and a safe place to, to grow up, I want you to take 15 steps forward. And they kept associating people with their backgrounds and, and, and different situations and assigning them different starting points. And after everyone was assigned to their specific starting point, uh, the, the leader says, go. And obviously some people took three steps to the finish line. Some people re- jogged and got there, and some people had to sprint from way back because they started off from way behind. Different people handle and deal with sadness and anxiety and depression differently. Look, you'll stop rushing people to get over it quickly once you realize it's not a race. And you'll realize it's not a race when you realize that it was a never fair to begin with because everyone has different starting points. Now this isn't an excuse for people to be lazy in dealing with their issues, you know, you can't say, oh, I had a hard upbringing, so tough. No, it doesn't. But it is an encouragement for us to be more patient as we help them through it. Job's friends waited until Job was ready. Here's what I wanna propose. Rather than making it your goal to get someone out of depression, make it your goal to anchor them in the Lord in their depression. Having that perspective, I think, it'll help prevent you from needing to rush them. But just because, you know, they're still in the mud, it doesn't mean they can't continue to mature in the Lord. In it, they can. Okay, so let's summarize. How do we mourn well in community? One, begin with curiosity, not accusation. Listen before you speak. Appreciate the complexities of the situation before you offer advice. Don't be prideful like Job's friends here who came to visit him already presuming to know the problem and the solution. Don't do that. Two, do the difficult task of feeling their heart before you assume the authority to direct their hands. Try to get to empathy before instruction. Three, don't rush them. Make it your goal to anchor them in the Lord during their a depression rather than to rush them out of their depression. That's it. And look, if you haven't been placed in such a situation yet where you have to deal with this and help somebody else deal with this, you know, where a loved one perhaps or, or a friend in this climate, it's very likely that you soon might have to do that. All kinds of people are experiencing all kinds of costs from this pandemic. The question is, will you glorify God by the way you love them? By the way, you commit to them. Will you represent Christ? By the way, you're patient with them. By the way, you point them to him. Will you glorify God? By the way, you mourn with one another. Okay, let's move on. So if in chapter two, verse 11 to 13, we see Job's friends mourning with him, that's the first scene. The second scene here is chapter three, verses one to 26, where we see Job mourning to God. Now, a word of warning if someone, you know, next to you at Sunday school prayers this kind of prayer that Job's about to pray, you'll be very concerned <laughs> because it's on the darker side of prayers, okay? If you think our series, the book of Ecclesiastes, was depressing, get get ready. But this is how Job prayed to God in this time of mourning, with brutal honesty and specificity. Second point. There are three sections uh, in this poem in, in chapter three, okay? Uh, the first section is verses, chapter three, verse three to ten. The second section is chapter 3, verse 11 to 19. The third section is chapter 3, verse 20 to 26. And each part has different wishes that Job lifts up to God. Okay, let's let's jump to it. The first section, verses 3 to 10. Job here tells God that he wishes he was never born in the first place. Take a look at all Job wished would have happened to the day in which he was born verses 3 to 10. He wished that day, verse 3, would perish. In other words, would have not existed. He wished that day, verse 4, uh, would have been skipped altogether. Let no light or sun shine upon it. Let it just be night. Skip it. Verse 5, he wishes that day would have been chased away by the dark. Verse 6, he wishes that day would have disappeared. Verse 8, he wishes that day would have been cursed by uh, Leviathan, which is a symbol of primordial chaos. Verse 9, he wishes that that day would be starved of light no matter how much it desires it. This is all an imagery to Genesis 1. Notice in each sentence, uh, Job starts with the phrase, let the day, let that day, let it not, let it hope, let the sun, let the light, right? And notice also how many references there are to light and darkness here. Now, this points back to when God first created the world in Genesis 1, because think about it, what did God say? Let there be light. Hear Job saying, no. Let there be no light. (laughs) Let the dawn of day never visit that wretched day in which I was born. Delete it, God, from eternity's calendar. He hated it so much. It's almost like he wanted to batter it, to to beat it up. Look at the violent descriptions he used about this day he was born. Verse 5, terrify it. Verse 8, curse it with chaos. Verse 9, starve it. From any kind of light. Most of us can't wait to celebrate our birthdays. Job wanted to destroy it. That's Job's wish. See how honest it was in the first section of the poem? Now let's see why he wished it. He gets specific here. I I wish this. Why? Because, verse 10, because of all the trouble in his life. What trouble? Well, everything he's lost. His business, his savings, his intimacy, and his marriage his reputation. You see that later, his three friends accuse him, right, for for being a bad person. His 10 children. It hurts more, some say, to have owned something and lose it compared to if you never had it in the first place. Job wished to, have, to just have never had it in the first place. Okay, the second section of the prayer. We see it in verse 11 and 19. It gets a little more graphic, okay, so. He wished he would have died as a baby. Look at verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, most likely referring to his father, who bent down his knee to receive him when he came out of the mother's womb? Or why the breast that I should nurse, talking about his mother, who, who, who took care of him and fed him. He's telling God his second wish here. If he had to be born, okay, but why not just abandon him as a baby? He would rather have been abandoned and die as a baby. Then experience what he experienced. I told you, if somebody prayed like this in Sunday school, you'd probably freak out. And as, as the first wish, Job again in the second wish got specific as to the reason why he would rather have died earlier than experience all this. Look at verse 18 to 19. This is the reason why. The prisoners are at ease together, they hear not the voice of the taskmaster, the small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. There's a few people Job described here, prisoners and taskmasters, small and great, slave and free. The point here is this, in death, by the way, death is is non-existence, okay, right now we're not talking about concepts of, of, of hell or heaven, right now Job's talking about non-existence. In death, Job says, it won't matter. It won't matter what earthly status you have. Prisoners and taskmasters, small and great, slave or free, it doesn't matter. See, on earth, generally speaking, if you're at the bottom of the social ladder, life is usually harder. There's more trouble to it. But in death, it doesn't matter whether you're on the top of the social ladder or whether you're on the bottom of the financial totem pole. Whether you're a taskmaster, great, free, or whether you're a prisoner, small, or a slave, we're all equally at rest. And you have to remember here that Job just got dragged down from the top of the social and financial ladder to the very bottom in a split second. This is a huge part of his suffering. Not only the depth of the barrel he was in, but from how high he came crashing down. The loss, the social fatigue, the anxiety, the shock, the trouble. And Job is just begging God here in in both sections of this poem. What's he begging God for? What's his wish, really? What's at the heart of it? Non existence? No. He wishes for rest. That's what he really wants. He's tired. Isn't that what we all want in this time of suffering? Just a bit of rest. Not physically, oh, not just physically or emotionally or existentially, but cognitively, socially. We want rest in all these aspects. We want to rest from always comparing ourselves from other people who are on the top of the social ladder. We want to rest from the voice inside of us that will not stop nagging about our failures. We want to rest from that one memory that always makes us cringe whenever we think about it. We want to rest from work. We want to rest from boredom. We want to rest from anxiety. We want to rest from constant threat of illness. We want to rest from the feeling of pointlessness we often experience. We want to rest from the question, why is this happening to me? All the things that Job is struggling with, we want to rest from. Look at what Job said in chapter 3, verse 13. I just want to lay down. I just want quiet. I just want sleep and rest from all my troubles. See, most people who are depressed are tired of feeling depressed. They just want rest from it. They're not even asking to be happy. They just want to rest from being sad. Throughout the Bible, it's interesting, every, every poem of lament like this, whenever it comes up, uh, it's often filled also with lament, yes, but also with the request of God to improve the state of the lamenter's being, but not here in Job. In this prayer of lament, Job is asking God, I'm not, easing, I'm not even asking to be happy. I just, want to tire from, I just want to break from being sad. That's what Job wanted. That's why he didn't want to exist. You see, unbelievably raw and honest and the specificity here in Job's prayers, it's so much, so much specificity, so much honesty that it perhaps violates every notion of propriety we might assume should exist in a piece of prayer. How honest are you in your prayers? How specific are you? Job left nothing in the dark. Now, I brought us down to the depths of Job's sadness, not just for theatrics. It's to lead us to this last point. Because what we see here is that although Job wished uh, God would take his life and soothe him from all of his troubles, he never assumed the authority to take matters into his own hands. Which brings us to our last point. Obedience and self-soothing. Okay. Let's move on uh, to the third section of the poem, right? So in the first two sections uh, we see Job wishes he never had a past. Here in the third section of the poem we we see that Job wish to no longer have a future. Verse twenty twenty one. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter soul, to the bitter in soul, who long for the death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures? Why is light, or in other words life, given to him who is in misery? He's asking, why am I still alive? His pain was so deep, he'd rather die now than having to endure this sadness and this trouble any longer. But, but, but here's a point. Far from condoning any notion of suicide here, this passage actually highlights Job's tenacity in remaining alive even though death could soothe him and give him rest. Where do we see that? Read verse 21 again carefully. I long for death, Job says, but it comes not. In other words, Job never assumes to have the authority to visit death himself. He's still waiting for death to come to him. Why? Because who does Job say decides when death happens? Verse 23, why is light or life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? God has that authority. God decides. See, there are certain choices Job could have made that would soothe him from his pain. And oh, how he wished it. But yet he never assumed the authority to do it. Why? Because even in his suffering, even in his deep desire to soothe himself from it, he still acknowledges God's authority. Was it easy for him to stay alive? No, absolutely not. His food and drink is replaced with sighing and groaning, verse 28 says. I'm not at ease, verse 26 says. I'm not quiet. I have no rest. But he endured. He still acknowledged God's authority and did not self-soothe in a way that is outside of God's will. And if anyone were to ever feel like they had the right to self-soothe through methods that are not within God's will, wouldn't it be Job? But he endured. Why? Because God was his God, whether on the mountain top or in the valley low. Are we not currently in a season filled with trouble and anxiety and exhaustion and sighing and groaning like Job is? How are we self-soothing? What methods are we choosing? Are we losing our temper with our loved ones because anger somehow soothes us from the feeling of weakness and helplessness? Are we becoming overly dependent upon certain substances in order to soothe ourselves from anxiety and worry? Look, I'm, I'm not saying every time you get an argument with a family member or every time you have a glass of wine or two <laughs> that you're in sin. No, I'm not saying that. The point, the point is... Will you still acknowledge God's kingship over your life even as you mourn? Will you do that? Or will you treat your sadness as a license to sin? So let's summarize real quick. The first point, we see instructions of how to deal with other people in their time of mourning, empathetically, patiently. Second point, we see how we are to pray to God in our time of mourning, honestly, specifically, and third point, we see how we are to behave as God's child in our time of mourning, obediently and faithfully. But now, why? Why should I do all that hard work? You know, why should God's glory be my concern right now? Why be patient and empathetic with others? Why pour my heart out in Him, uh, to Him in prayer? Why should I care about what pleases Him in the way I self-soothe? He's the one that brought us down this valley low, and now He's asking us, To do all this while we're in the dark? He doesn't know how this feels, but oh my, does he not? It's interesting, I think, to see how God in the incarnation of Jesus Christ did the the exact opposite of Job's prayer here. Think about it. See, Job here prayed and wished that he was never born as a child. Why? So that he can escape his pain But you know what God did in the person of Jesus? He decided to be born as a child. Why? To take our pain. Job wanted to die and find rest from his troubles. Jesus died to give us rest from ours. See, all of Job's friends unjustly accused him. They wrongly threw accusations upon him. Jesus came to us. Why? To be our true friend not to wrongly accuse us, but to take on the accusation that rightly belonged to us. God does not know how it feels to be in the valley low. He put himself in the deepest valley so that we may be raised up with him. He knows how it feels, and he did it not because he deserved it or because he had to. He did it so that we may escape it. So why do the hard work of glorifying God by being patient and empathetic to others who are suffering because he empathized with us in his suffering. He's kind. Why honor him in our suffering today by lifting up honest and sincere prayers because he's guaranteed his commitment to us on that cross. He's safe. Why endure through painful obedience in the valley low because he's endured your darkest valley so that you may escape it. He's worth it. See, God's love for us in the gospel, it gives us power not only to survive as a community through this valley low we're in, but to thrive in it. It gives, us, it gives us the patience we need to empathize and comfort others who are suffering. It drives us to pray by reminding us that he's a safe God that's on our side. And it gives us the power to obey, even when there seems to be many reasons not to. Church, in this season, more than ever, I pray you would display Christ. Glorify God in season and out of season during harvest and drought on the mountain highs and the valley Mm -hmm. lows. Comfort others who are mourning. Remain obedient to him even as you mourn and exhibit the power of the cross. Through that, the world needs it now more than ever. As Tozier once said, a frightened world needs a fearless church. Will you be that? By the way you care for others, by the way you pray, and by the way you obey, even in this time of suffering. I hope you will. Your loved ones are worth it, and your Savior is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we beg you for mercy as we learn and try to glorify you in this time of mourning, I pray that you would forgive us as we often um, do not mourn with others well, as we often do not come to you in prayer as we mourn, and as we often choose to self-soothe in ways that are not within your will. Help us still acknowledge you and glorify you as God, as King, as Lord, even in this valley low. Help us love others well, help us come to you, and help us obey you, even when it's hard to do so, even when it's costly, because you are worth it. And we pray that through this, your people may glorify you, and that we could be a light in this dark world currently, who's in desperate need for hope. Let us display our Savior in the way we mourn and that your gospel may be preached and go forth to those who desperately need it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.